Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, after dozens of witnesses, countless hours of testimony, the Public Order Emergency Commission has finally concluded its testimony phase. We do a recap of the last six weeks up next on The Andrew Lawton Show. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, on this Tuesday, November 29th, 2022. Coming to you from a remote, secret, undisclosed location, which you will have a little bit more disclosure of on tomorrow's show. And I promise you it will be worth it as we talk about the wrap-up of the Public Order Emergency Commission, which has consumed, certainly for my life and perhaps for a lot of yours, uh, much of the last seven weeks. And I, I want to just say here that this was a, a very significant moment. And just to give some context here, the Emergencies Act itself, the law says that there has to be a commission investigating the emergency, and that commission has to produce a report within one year of the end of the so-called emergency, which means this commission has been working on a time frame where Commissioner Paul Rouleau has to table his report before Parliament by February, by the third, fourth week of February 2023. So obviously there was a very aggressive time frame here, and these were long, long days. As I talked about on the show previously, the first witness would take the stand at 9.30 a.m., and it would go sometimes until well past 8 p.m. They didn't end up doing any evening or weekend sittings like was uh, rumored to be a possibility. But still, very long days. People were, some people were there for the entire thing. I was up there in Ottawa at a couple of points, but even when I wasn't there, I was staying tuned remotely, and our whole team was invested in it. So I wanted to take this opportunity on this program, not just to unpack Justin Trudeau's and Christian Freeland's testimony in the last couple of days of the commission hearings, but actually just to go back down memory lane for a bit and talk about some of the broader themes that emerged here, which I, I think were very important. So we'll get to that in just a moment and do our little stroll through the bureaucratic revisionist history version of memory lane. But just to talk about Justin Trudeau's testimony for a moment here, I think this is like the greatest example of revisionism right here. A number of people have testified in this inquiry referencing your widely published comments and calling the unvaccinated racists and misogynists. And we have heard testimony in this inquiry about how some of your officials wanted to label protesters as terrorists. Would you agree with me that one of the most important roles of a prime minister is to unite Canadians and not divide them by engaging in name calling? Uh, I did not call people who were unvaccinated names. I highlighted there is a difference between people who are hesitant to get vaccinated for any range of reasons and people who deliberately spread misinformation that puts at risk the life and health of their fellow Canadians. Okay, and well, my focus every step of the way and the primary responsibility of a prime minister is to keep Canadians safe and alive. Just for fun, just for fun, let's play this clip that I just stumbled upon from the 2021 election campaign. On est en train de décider que oui, 
on va s'en sortir de cette pandémie par la vaccination. Puis on, sait, on en connaît tous des gens qui sont en train d'hésiter un petit peu. On va continuer d'essayer de les convaincre. Mais il y a aussi des gens qui sont farouchement opposés à la vaccination. Qui sont extrémistes. Qui ne croient pas dans la science, qui sont souvent misogynes, qui sont souvent racistes aussi. C'est un, 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 un petit groupe, mais qui prend de la place. So maybe he did actually call them names. Maybe he was just peddling before the Public Order Emergency Commission fake news. No, no, no. As he says, oh, I wasn't calling all unvaccinated people that, just the ones that dared protest vaccine mandates effectively. So it's amazing how brazen he was. Now, I should say, and a lot of people that just despise Justin Trudeau may not accept this, but I watched his testimony and I thought he did very well. I thought he was very candid. He was very frank. He answered the questions directly, which is not something you get from him in press conferences. And I think one of the senses that I got was that he's very much a true believer. He entirely owns up to his decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. He's completely, as he says, he's serene with it. He's serene and at peace with his decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. And why that's so important is because it means that he still believes this was an appropriate response to the convoy protest. I don't know how much of the last seven weeks of testimony he watched, But if he watched any of it from law enforcement, from convoy protesters, he should have seen what any Canadian who tuned in saw, which is that this was a peaceful protest. At times, it might have been a little bit chaotic or disorganized, but it was a peaceful protest by people that came to Ottawa, not because they were insurrectionists, not because they wanted to perpetrate acts of violence, but because they wanted to send a message to government, a message that Justin Trudeau refused to hear. And he was actually asked about that because there was a lot in the course of the commission that was made of the engagement approach, of actually hearing these people, of sitting down with them, of talking to them. And, and Trudeau acknowledged under oath that he never in a million years was going to consider that. He said, yeah, well, we already heard them. What, what was there to do? Why would we have sat down with them? While the protests may have gotten, can we say, out of hand or snowballed and been extremely disruptive, They weren't the, the actions of a small minority, but a, a real expression of frustration, a legitimate frustration. They wanted to engage and they wanted you to speak to them and they wanted to hear directly from their federal government and that did not happen. So do you have an answer to that? Um, I, first of all, we heard them. We knew exactly what they were asking for. They were very, very clear that they wanted an end Uh, to mandates. Uh, the convoy protesters uh, were, were expressing their disagreement with very specific uh, public policies that they were very vocal, both um, in um, mainstream communications and uh, through social media on uh, what they wanted, and they were very much heard. But it was clear that it wasn't that they just wanted to be heard. They wanted to be obeyed. What, what an arrogant thing to say. We, we didn't need to hear them because, well, we, we knew they were there. We heard them. We heard them in the broadest possible sense. Yeah, but you weren't actually listening. You weren't actually listening. Yeah, maybe the faint sound of a honk, you know, drifted over the Ottawa River and made its way through the trees and wound up on your doorstep at uh, Harrington Lake in Quebec, sir, but you didn't actually hear. And if you did hear, you didn't actually care about what they were talking about. And he says they didn't want to be heard, they wanted to be obeyed. 
I, I don't actually think that's a fair characterization of what the protesters were after. I mean, certainly they wanted changes to policy. But remember, they, they weren't asking for government money. They weren't asking for government to do anything but get off of their backs. And, and this is the great thing, I think, about a protest that's more libertarian in nature, is that what people are asking for is to be left alone. These vaccine mandates were not required. These restrictions were not required. They were there because government wanted to start meddling in people's own decisions, meddling with bodily autonomy, meddling with the right of truckers to be truckers without government throwing all these burdensome and cumbersome rules and regulations onto them. And it was interesting how Justin Trudeau decided to characterize what protest is. Okay, so fairly self-explanatory. There's, there's a, a willingness to, to discuss, but you, you were concerned about setting a precedent where uh, a blockade could equal a, a, a change in public policy. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, I think we, we have uh, a robust functioning democracy and uh, protests, public protests are an important part of making sure we're getting messages out there and Canadians are getting messages out there and highlighting how they feel about various issues. Uh, but using protests to demand uh, changes to public policy um, is something that, that I think is, is, is worrisome. Okay. Um, so thank you, Mr. Although, Clark. sorry, to a certain extent. No, no, extent, please go on. Yeah, you know, protests, if you're out protesting that the government is, you know, shutting down a, a safe injection site or something, you are asking for changes in, in public policy. But there is a difference between uh, occupations uh, and, and, you know, saying we're not going until this has changed uh, in a way that is massively disruptive. Okay, hang on. So you can't protest to demand changes to public policy. Like, what do you protest for? To enjoy the Ottawa winter? Like, do you just protest to enjoy the minus 18 degrees in Ottawa? Like, no, I, protests are for demanding changes to public policy. And it's interesting if you watch that clip uh, or listen to it for those listening to the podcast, how he kind of like realizes he stepped in it there and says, okay, no, no, no. But yeah, like you, you can actually use protests to change public policy if you know the government is shutting down something in your community. So what he's saying is you, you have to demand a change that he supports to public policy. Like you can't just demand any old change. It has to be something that he finds is a respectable change to public policy. And then he just goes on to the narrative, oh, you can't occupy. But but even then, Teresa Spence, the uh, former Indigenous chief in Attawapiskat, I mean, she staged a sit-in on an island near Ottawa for her, like, weird fake hunger strike where she was actually eating. But the thing about that was that, like, she was occupying a, a part of Ottawa. So government only uses the term occupy when they've decided that this is a, a so-called unlawful protest. And, and that's why so much of this commission, I think, comes down to very critical questions that arguably weren't answered in the public record, such as why did the government think this was an, an unlawful protest? And at what point did it become unlawful? And to look at the question of the Emergencies Act, this act requires for a public order emergency that there is a threat to the security of Canada. Why did the government think it was justified to use a threat to the security of Canada that was broader than the definition actually in the Emergencies Act and in the CSIS Act? And we can't see that because government is hiding the legal advice it got under the veil of solicitor-client privilege. 
And there was this clip of the Government of Canada lawyer reminding everyone, don't you dare ask David Lametti, the Attorney General, questions about legal advice given to the government. Thank you. Good morning, Commissioner. It's Andrea Gonzalez, Counsel for the Government of Canada. Um, the next witness will be uh, Minister of Justice David Lametti. In addition to being Minister of Justice, of course, um, Minister of Just uh, the Minister is the Attorney General of Canada, the lawyer to the Government of Canada. And I wanted to put on the record that the Government of Canada continues to assert and maintain uh, all of its claims of solicitor client privilege in respect of all legal advice and opinions. Minister Lametti's attendance here uh, as a witness is not a waiver of any claims of privilege by the Government of Canada, which he has an obligation to protect. We will be objecting to, and Minister Lametti will be refusing to answer all questions that would delve into areas of solicitor-client privilege. So I just wanted to put that on the record at the front end, um, and hopefully examinations um, can be appropriately tailored to keep the objections to a minimum. And why that's so important is because, and I don't want to rehash the discussion I had on the show last week or two weeks ago about the intricacies of the Emergencies Act, but really what happened here is that all of these people, police and CSIS, said there was no threat to the security of Canada as defined by the CSIS Act. And it's the CSIS Act that gives the definition to a threat to the security of Canada that the Emergencies Act uses. But there was some magic transformation that took place within the cabinet process where they started to see, well, you know what, maybe there's an alternative definition here. And Jody Thomas, who was the National Security and Intelligence Advisor for the government, had actually testified that she effectively made up a new definition of the Emergencies Act based on what she thought it should have said. Right, I understand. So you're saying that the CSIS Act and Section 2 of the CSIS Act which is incorporated into the Emergencies Act, means something different when you're looking at it. No, that's not what I've said. So what do you mean? I mean that in terms of the Emergency Act, the governor and council um, can consider more broadly than the intelligence collected by CSIS in determining a national security threat or situation or a public order emergency. I understand that. But the, you do agree that the four grounds of types of threats in Section 2 of the CSIS Act are what is, in fact, required to have been found. No, I don't agree. So it can go beyond what the Act says, which is a threat to the security of Canada. There are other definitions of threats to the security of Canada, as we saw earlier. Right, but not in the legislation. Um, the Emergency Act allows for the Governor and Council to make a broad decision about public that's, order emergencies. That's not what it says, but you can agree with me. I that think that this is an argument to have with lawyers. Well, that's kind of weird. So you're actually just moonlighting. You're just riffing. You're, you're doing like Emergencies Act improv night at the comedy club here, and you're deciding that you have a new definition. Yeah, Perrin Beattie and uh, Brian Mulrooney, they got it wrong. This is what the Emergencies Act should have done. Great, change the Emergencies Act then, but don't change it in real time when the act itself doesn't say what you think it says. And David Vigneault, who is the uh, CSIS director, he also went along with this revamped definition. Even though CSIS said there was no threat to the security of Canada, CSIS Director Vigneault said to Trudeau, yeah, you should still invoke the Emergencies Act. So 
Why were all of these people somehow coming up with different definitions? And why is the federal government still hiding its definition and its legal advice when that is like the very core of the question before the commission? What I said at the beginning of this whole thing was that the Emergencies Act was a tool that the government used, I think, because they wanted to go after the bank accounts. I think the government knew that the Coots Crossing was about to be cleared up. The Windsor Crossing had already been cleared. Other border crossings had been cleared with regular policing powers. I think the government wanted to send a message, and the government wanted to throw the weight of the state behind the truckers, and I think the government wanted to go after the money. And you have to note that even with the Emergencies Act having been revoked in February, there are still millions of dollars of donations that are hung up because of these government measures. This was the thing, and, and I was very grateful because I think the commission, by and large, was a very positive thing for the convoy because the convoy got to tell its story for the first time. People like Tamara Leach are under strict bail conditions. She can be thrown in jail if she does an interview and talks about the convoy. Pat King, again, I I have little time for him, but I think he was a part of this story, and he, as well, will be thrown back in jail if he opens his mouth in public. So these people were able to tell their story under oath. And we also saw a bit of a picture of the money, which was interesting. And and there was a, a great report that the Convoy Council put together and presented in which it acknowledged that very little of the money ever made it to the protesters because of the various hurdles they encountered. The GoFundMe donations were refunded. The million that went through was frozen by TD. The gifts and go donations were refunded. Some crypto donations made it to truckers, but most of that was seized by the government and still sits in escrow. So the story of the convoy was not a story of, you know, millions flooding in from Russian actors from all corners of the former Soviet bloc, but it was actually from people that just supported this message of freedom. But it was interesting seeing how punitive some of these financial measures were. And in Christopher Freeland's notes, we saw that banking executives were not siding with Canadians, were not siding with freedom, but banking executives were by and large siding with government. And in Christian Freeland's notes, you get two people, one in particular named Dave, who we believe is the head of RBC. Dave, who was saying that he wanted them all labeled as terrorists. Terrorists, because that would let the bank more easily get in there and start seizing their money. Christian Freeland didn't want to say who Dave was, though. This is a note with Dave. What page? 12, page 12, please. And this is a note uh, that I understand you wrote with Dave from CSIS. That's uh, 11. And this is a a meeting with uh, Dave from CSIS. And if you scroll, there you say that you need to designate the group as terrorists. So... but it's not your job, but you wanted to designate them as terrorists, right? So that handwritten note in my notebook, I can assure you that was not a meeting with the director of CSIS, That's, with whom I didn't have a meeting. It says, it's okay, it's, uh, it's with David Vignon from CSIS. It doesn't say that. It says it's with a gentleman called Dave. Which Dave? That meeting, that is not an account of which a Dave? meeting with Dave Vigneault because which, I didn't which have you, a which, meeting which Dave is in with those the notes, CSIS ma'am. director. Which Dave is in those notes? What's Dave's last name? 
I need to see my whole notebook that you're referring to, but I can tell you it for only certain. Says Dave. I, I can tell you for certain that I did not have a meeting during this time with the CSIS director. And in her notes, you can also see on the screen there, there was another Daryl. Uh, Daryl was one. And again, that name aligns with the head of BMO. So you've got RBC and BMO, whose executives are seemingly calling for convoy protesters to be terrorists. You have uh, one banking uh, organization, TD, which unilaterally seized that million dollars from Tamara Leach's account, which had come from the GoFundMe campaign. And then you also wonder who was left standing up. Now, there's a little bit of process of elimination here, I admit. But one banking executive in, in, in this readout of the call between banking CEOs and Christian Freeland said, no, 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 no. I don't want Canadians to think that government is weaponizing banks, that government is politicizing banks. And this executive said, I, and by the way, Christian Freeland said, I don't understand. You'll have to explain, which I think is in and of itself revealing. But if you look in the readout of this call, they went on to say, why don't you actually just call for an end to restrictions? Why does Canada have more restrictions than all of these other countries? And I said to myself when I saw that, like, I want to know what bank that is so I can move like all of my accounts over there. Like, it's not BMO and it's not RBC. I don't think it's TD. So uh, one person said that it might be Scotiabank because Scotiabank has actually pushed back against the government in some way. I guess it could be CIBC. I, I don't know who else was on the call because those names were like uh, Justin Trudeau at a party, blacked out. But the thing about it is that these things are very important and banking executives were not just unwittingly victims of the Emergencies Act measures. They were actively calling for more measures. And I think Canadian consumers need to realize that, that the banks were not on the side of freedom and were not on the side of Canadians by and large, except for this one mystery banker that called out the weaponization of financial institutions. I should point out here that a lot of the government's narrative was really about what could have happened. It's not about what did happen. It's not about violence. It's about threats of violence, what could have took, taken place. Uh, earlier on in the testimony, Steve Bell, the deputy police chief of Ottawa, who at the time was the acting police chief, had made this comment about how whenever he talked about violence, he means like vi violence in the broadest sense, like feelings of violence and stuff like that. And But the, the whole point is that you had people that were really trying to rewrite what violence is. And uh, let's talk about this because Peter slowly called it a tinderbox. Uh, Christian Freeland, she called it a powder keg. Another thing that was very much in my mind was the possibility of violent conflict between people doing the blockading and occupying and other Canadians who were very angry about it. Um, I felt that Canada was sort of a powder keg and that you could have a violent physical confrontation at any point. Um, I didn't visit Windsor at the time, but I heard um, a lot of people saying, you know, this could really get out of hand. And the people of Windsor, they really understand how important that trade over the Ambassador Bridge is. And I did really fear you could have counter protests and a confrontation there. And that would have been terrible. Ooh, a powder keg waiting to explode. Okay, now, except for the fact that we probably need to find some new cliches in the Emergencies Act discussion, let's go with this powder keg. Because what you're saying there is that all it takes is just a little spark and this whole thing will balloon 
into World War III Wellington Street. It'll just be truck on Prius, and they'll all just like have this violent clash in the streets of Ottawa. Uh, what exactly does she mean by violence? Well, Deputy Prime Minister? But I remember one morning when I was walking from my hotel to my office, I walked past a parked truck, um, and there was a young woman walking there too. And the truck honked really loudly. And she shouted something not very nice and made an obscene hand gesture. And the truck honked again really loudly. And I was really glad that I was there and more importantly that the RCMP was there because I thought this is exactly the kind of thing, like imagine no one had been there. It was just this small young woman and this big truck and a person in it. And she was mad. And I just thought, you know, there are dozens and dozens of these things happening every day. And, you know, God forbid that one of them should actually flare into violence and physical harm. Hmm. So she's explaining this powder keg. She's had three weeks of the convoy being in Ottawa. She's had 10 months since then. She's had six weeks of commission hearings to come up with an answer to that question. And what she gets is, I saw a truck honk. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it gets worse because the girl flipped the middle finger to the truck who honked again. Carnage. Absolute carnage. Like, I, but I, I love the implication. She said, I'm glad the RCMP were there and I'm glad I was there. Nowhere in the story does she talk about doing anything other than watching it. So it's like, what, what did she do in that moment that de-escalated this from becoming uh, Grand Theft Auto? Because like the way she tells the story, it's like the truck honked, the girl said F you and gave the middle finger, the truck honked again. And the girl was about to like reach into her backpack and pull out a machine gun and uh, just like lay waste to the truckers. And then Christian Friela just swoops in and says, no, I've got the emergencies act. You can't do that. I'll freeze your bank account right now, trucker. It's like, but she didn't do anything. So she didn't prevent the non-existent violence from escalating into further non-existent violence, which I think is great. Like, it's, it's probably a great metaphor for the Trudeau government that they stand on the sidelines doing nothing and say, thank goodness we were here or something could have happened, even though they didn't prevent the nothing from happening in the first place. Like, but this is what the Emergencies Act thing has all been about. It's this government that is just hell-bent on maligning the truckers, on assuming the worst, and doesn't seem to acknowledge that this violent insurrection, this powder keg, this tinderbox, this tinder keg, this powder box, that nothing ever happened. It didn't actually become this. And the small, small incidents that did occur were either wildly misrepresented or distorted by the media or were dealt with in the rare cases where there was a, a lawless behavior by existing police authorities. And I'll tell you a story here, and there's a, a video you can watch of this. When I was up in Ottawa near the end of the convoy, I think it was the Thursday or something before the Sunday where it, it had all ended, I was uh, right on Wellington Street. I was by the stage truck right in front of Center Block and Parliament Hill. And there was this police raid on this guy who had parked his car in the middle of the intersection who had apparently been giving people some grief. And he put up a big fight. Uh, police ended up having to, like, physically carry him out. Police moved in, they got rid of him, they moved out. 
And what was interesting is the stage manager or MC, whatever his title was, who was part of the convoy protest, was narrating as this was happening, telling everyone to stay calm, to let police do their work, because it was police themselves that were called by convoy organizers. And it was the convoy organizers that said, we didn't like what this guy was doing, and we thought it was causing a safety risk. So there were examples of that where people in the convoy said, yeah, we actually want to make sure that anyone who's violating this mandate that we have for a peaceful, lawful protest, that those people are removed. And that's exactly what police did in this moment. Now, I don't know if they charged him. I don't know the backstory. Supposedly, there had been some minor assault or threat of assault in some form. But that was the whole point. You can't just retroactively look and say that the people that were trying to keep their own protests safe were the ones that were causing this violent uh, clash that never really materialized. And even then, I mean, the, the subtext of Christian Freeland's point is that it wasn't even the convoy protesters that were the problem, it was counter-protesters. Like, that was what she was saying the problem was, is that this other person there was potentially going to cr cause this escalation, not the protesters themselves. And there was a moment early on that came up in the commission where someone was like having eggs thrown at them by people in Ottawa. So again, this was a form of, of violence, um, you know, as they say in French, enough is enough. Uh, but it was this form of violence that was taking place that was from counter protesters, not from convoy organizers themselves. So even then, I don't think you can say that a possibility of something is a national emergency when that something doesn't materialize. So that's been the more recent development of this hearing. I, I want to talk about some of the bigger picture aspects here because I, I saw a number of people raise concerns that this is some rigged process, that it's a biased commissioner. And to be fair, I don't share those concerns. I, I think that in general, in a six-week-long six period of testimony, you're going to find rulings and decisions and, and lines of questioning that come up that you think are stacked against you, but the other side is probably doing that as well. I think the commissioner was, generally speaking, very fair. I think at a certain point, long days get to people, and I think that's true of Brendan Miller. I think it's true of Commissioner Paul Rouleau. I think it's true of others in the process as well. Like It's, it's just a long, grueling slog to get through it. But I think that the commissioner was asking, when he weighed in himself, very astute questions. And, and the one that kept coming up, which I, I made note of because of how often he was bringing it up, was this idea of whether there was an alternate protest option identified that would have allowed protesters to continue lawfully protesting even after trucks had been removed and police had moved in. And it didn't sound like that was ever offered. It didn't sound like these people were ever told, yes, you can be here without your vehicles. You can be here, but you can't have a truck on Wellington Street. When, if we were actually upholding the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as Justin Trudeau claimed with the Emergencies Act, that would have been the main point to stress. Yes, lawful protest is still allowed, and here's what we're doing to ensure that right is unimpeded. So when you go back to the beginning of it here, there were a lot of things that were brought up that had nothing to do with the Emergencies Act. That like, for example, I mean, this one is going back to like day one or day two, the threat of the real menace here, phantom honking. Uh, Ms. Delaron, can you describe for the commissioner, what was the impact, if any, on your physical well-being? The impact on my physical well-being is, is uh, quite extensive. Uh, I certainly, during the experience, um, had difficulty sleeping. Uh, I had an effect on my lungs and my throat. 
because of the fumes and other smells. Um, and I also have long-term effects. Can you describe those for us? The long-term effects are loss of hearing, loss of balance, some vertical, uh, triggered by the sound of any horn now, uh, triggered by certain music, as the music was very loud, and, and a physical trigger when I get a smell of gas. Both my throat and uh, lungs start to uh, feel infected. I had also uh, a, a phantom horn blowing as an experience for a number of weeks after. Phantom honking is real. Like when I was in Ottawa, just that first weekend, for example, I got home and I think it was like the Monday night or the Tuesday night. I just like bolted up in the middle of the night, having heard a honk, which like did not exist in the real world. But even then, I don't think it was a public order emergency that this honk took place. And uh, also, I would say that the organizers were annoyed with all the honking too, which was why they were all like on board when the injunction came along and the truckers went along with it. And they had, you know, a couple of points throughout the day where they would honk, or if there was a presentation going on, they would honk like it was applause, but they weren't actually honking from morning to night, like was being described, as might have taken place in that very first weekend. So all of that is to say that if honking was the biggest problem, I think this sounds like something that wartime powers weren't necessarily needed to deal with. And I want to bring it back to basics here. What is the Emergencies Act about? I go back to what I said earlier with the threat to security, as is in the CSIS Act, which is the basis of the definition used in the Emergencies Act. And when I say basis, I mean it's identical. This was convoy lawyer Brendan Miller's opening statements in which he talks about, in very specific terms, what the government needs to prove if it wants to defend the use of the Emergencies Act. The Emergencies Act requires several things. One, it could be invoked due to espionage, and sabotage. Are you going to hear any evidence about espionage and sabotage? The answer to that is no. Two, it could be invoked on the basis of clandestine or deceptive foreign influence, or foreign influence that involves a threat to a person. Are you going to hear evidence about that? The answer to that is no. It also could be invoked on the basis of threats or use of acts of serious violence against persons or property. Are you going to hear evidence of violence against persons or property? The answer is no. Lastly, it can also be invoked if there is a group or persons trying to destroy or overthrow by violence the system of government of Canada. Are you going to hear evidence about individuals trying to do that? The answer is no. And the answer is, is that there was no reasonable and probable grounds to invoke the Emergencies Act and that the government exceeded their jurisdiction, both constitutionally and legislatively, in doing so. Thank you. Now, as I said, that definition became very important because the government decided to just create a new definition. So the government doesn't even really argue that those things were present in the convoy. They danced around it. Like, I watched the whole thing, and the Government of Canada lawyers' closing remarks didn't go through point by point and say, we've made a case that there was espionage or there was foreign influence. Or that. They didn't actually make that case. So I think that at the end of it, the commissioner 
is going to have to make his report. That part we know. He doesn't need to come out with a binary, it was right or it was wrong. He could actually come up with something that's a lot more of a discussion. He could come up with something that's a lot more along the lines of, these are some facts I observe, these are where the points of contention are, these are my recommendations. I think it sounds like he wants to truly make a decision that this was not justified. But even if he does, even if he were to come out, as I've said, with this scathing report, there's no real accountability unless politicians or Canadians demand accountability. And I think it's important, and I, I said that the process of this Public Order Emergency Commission was critical because Canadians themselves got to hear these details which previously had not been available to them. And I think that Canadians are really the ones on the front line of this. And I say this as someone who has tried to pour over all of this and share the relevant clips that I think are interesting with people, because I know that not everyone is a glutton for punishment like I am and is going to just sit through this all like the True North team did, and that's fine. But I, I want you to know what happened. And I want you to know how the government has moved the goalposts on this act. And as I've said so many times, even if you oppose the convoy, you can still oppose the Emergencies Act and realize that it was a heavy-handed and overbearing response to a situation that did not rise to the level the Emergencies Act demands. That does it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in and also for uh, tuning into True North's coverage of the Public Order Emergency Commission. I'm not saying that I won't reference it in the shows and weeks to come, but I think you'll be able to get a bit of an escape from it that you haven't in the last couple of months. So I appreciate your patience on that and all of your feedback. And in general, we had a team in Ottawa. We had a team working around the clock, following this, writing about it, clipping uh, the videos that came out of it. If you want to support our work on covering this and anything else we do, please, please, please head on over to donate.tnc.news, donate.tnc.news. We are an organization that exists thanks to the support of people that align with and value the work we do. So if that's you, please uh, do uh, throw in a couple of dollars as you're able to. And I know times are difficult, which is why I stress the if you're able to. But uh, independent media cannot do the work it does without the people there supporting it. So that's our pitch, but I will talk to you tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you Thanks all. for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.